to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we dig in deep to analyze the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. I'm Andy Nelson from thenextreel.com. And I'm Pete Wright, also from The Next Reel. We are, of course, looking at Iron Man from 2008. And joining us once again, we have the MCU guru, Dr. Arnold Blumberg. Hello, welcome back. Hi, guys. It's a pleasure. Been enjoying this immensely. Arnold's here to make everything I say sound better immediately afterwards. That is my job. <laughs> that's, that's what a good doctor does. That's right. <laughs> well, we are looking at Iron Man Minute 68 on today's show. The minute starts with Zoriana Kit telling viewers that no one expects an appearance from Tony Stark. And it ends with Obi letting the press know that weapons manufacturing is only a small part of Stark Industries. I don't know about that Obadiah guy. Uh, I tell you, so, he is shady. Yeah, neither did they at the time. But Nobody he's so smooth. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> that, that smooth shave that he's got. Yeah, it is a great look for Jeff Bridges. I love it. But we're starting off in Tony's garage, though. Um, we're finishing up on Zoriana talking about uh, this uh, this event, this fundraiser going on, and while this is happening, this is where we get to see Jarvis finish uh finish the paint job on the new mark three in the in that fantastic gold yeah i got to apologize i i i, I committed a next real sin there i know I, <laughs> I, I jumped ahead last time i'm sorry well i this is i feel like we need a uh a, a, a bumper a theme a, a theme bumper for comics history moment the it, if I recall, and I was not at the time an avid reader of the Iron Man comics, but wasn't there a period where he was a solid color? He's just gold um, when yeah. it starts. He, yeah. So okay. so when he starts in the original Tales of Suspense stories, he's um, he's got the gray steel tank armor that he starts with, but it immediately goes to gold. And then almost immediately after that, they abandon sort of the very direct like buckethead kind of style start to slim it down and go to the red and gold and then like it's another thing too that's like that i think the movies have captured beautifully is that in the comics themselves too in those early days and even as the years have gone on the suit is constantly changing which feels like something that goes entirely against any thought of how you brand a character from a marketing and corporate perspective, you know, keep the icon the same, keep it consistent. But he was changing constantly. And there was like little fun window there in the 60s where he has the peaked uh, uh, mask on the top that has the two points in front of it and a bit like a ribbed red background. And it, and it just kept changing. So, yes, it was solid gold first. And, and I know Favreau being a fan – this was a deliberate nod to say, okay, we're not going to stop here in the movie, mm -hmm. but we want you to see it because this is what it originally was. And it's a little wink to all of us that this is what happened. How how long was that period where it was gold? I'm, I'm asking because I'm trying to get a sense of just how much comic time did they compress with this it, inside this like five seconds? It wasn't very long. Uh, going through it again before uh, before we recorded, it's about eight episodes, uh, eight okay. issues, issues of the of the comic. Yeah. yeah, and it's and it's actually really funny. So he he first creates kind of that that uh, kind of the silver look, um, or just kind of that the metal. And it's the second issue when he realizes that people find him ugly. And, yes. And it's really funny because he's with a date at the circus and uh, like there's this kid, you know, he's, uh, of course, this is what's going to happen in the comics. 
um, the cage breaks and all the big cats escape and are terrorizing the crowd. And, and he gets his suit on and there's a kid who's, you hear in the background, mama, mama, save me from the ugly man. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so great. But then he asks uh, the girl that he's on the date with, Marion, because um, she's just like, uh, I can't understand one thing. Why does he wear such a terrifying looking costume? He actually frightens people. And then he's, you know, he's with her. He says, really, my dear, what do you think he should wear? Well, he battles menaces like a hero in golden in olden times. So if he's a modern knight in shining armor, why doesn't he wear golden metal instead of that awful dull gray armor? Oh, Stan. <laughs> why not indeed? Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, too, that a lot of Stan's early writing and a lot of the, the formation of these characters often deals with the characters being fearful. And it's, and it's you know, one of the, the recurring things that comes up when all of us talk about the Marvel characters is how many of the Marvel characters are rooted in being outcasts or misunderstood or even monstrous, whereas the DC pantheon that preceded them were much more like the mythological figures of old. Um mm-hmm. And being like beautiful looking people. Like even Batman, yes, he strikes terror and that, but you know, Bruce Wayne's still a handsome guy, and Batman in a sense is still, you know, a muscular, idealist idealized version of a person. And yet the Marvel characters are like Spider-Man is creepy and disturbing, and the X-Men are horrific outcasts and they're they're mutants and Fantastic Four. Look what happened to the thing, he's a monster and the Hulk's a monster. And even with Iron Man, it's just a metal suit. He still wants to work that in, that idea of these people aren't people we would immediately trust. So how do they gain our goodwill? And it's neat that that plays out on the page rather than just being, eh, make the suit gold this issue. And it's yeah, like, right. no, we have to make a reason. It's it's a lot of fun. And I'm glad that they spend the time and do that. And, uh, and I also appreciate that uh, as we were talking, how it does continue evolving because it starts off where it, it does. I mean, it's not necessarily just like golden red tights that he's wearing, but some of it certainly feels that way. His arms and legs look more like the tight sort of look. So I love that when John Favreau uh, and team finally came around to making the movie, they really gravitated, especially Favreau, to Adi Granoff's suit that he'd uh, kind of, I mean, modified to create for around the time that he was, uh, I think, doing the Extremis storyline, where it was much more uh, metal parts all over. And I think that that's really what, what set it off on the look that, for the film, which looks just so beautiful. It's incredible. I mean, I, I've, I've enjoyed just about every permutation they've done in the, in the series of films. Every one of them, I think, has something to recommend it and just as like a visual feast. But I think it all comes back to the fact that they just absolutely nailed it in this first movie. He looks perfect. It's great also that, one, I think it's just fun that he comments on the gold suit saying it's it's a little ostentatious, don't you <laughs> yeah. think? Which is fantastic. Yeah. yeah, that's Tony Stark saying that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But also, I love that it's that red hot rod of his that, that triggers the red color. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's something, uh, I mean, I think that he likes it, but also... I think that there's something that with that car that connects him to his father and kind of the that whole side of Stark that's not just necessarily Stark Industries, but just to his childhood and his dad and everything. And I think looking at that car specifically to pinpoint the red color, I I, I find uh, kind of just has this emotional touch 
that gives a little more to it that otherwise wouldn't have been there. Oh, absolutely. And and I mean, then there's the other element of, you know, there's always the old cliche of, you know, guys go through a midlife crisis, they get the red sports car. Well, this guy gets to build an entire suit of armor and make yeah. the ultimate, you know, <laughs> self-contained little sports vehicle of his own and do the red. But the father can, well, of course, the other thing too is from the very beginning and obviously going forward too, Tony Stark's story is inherently a father-son story. And in a way, actually, if you look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe in general, one of its most interesting emotional threads and arguably one of its biggest weaknesses over the last 10 years or so is the fact that very often that is the only story, that they have been very fixated on father-son stories with many of these characters. And at least at the beginning here, though, there's none of that baggage and you know we don't know what else is going to happen and it's an interesting way to deal with it because he's got the ghost of his lost father and we have Obadiah as sort of like a surrogate and then how that plays out with the two of them in this and at least in, you know you're watching this first film it's very compelling on the screen as we're you know we're talking about the the coloring we've talked about the user interfaces uh before and i think you know we get we double down on a lot of that in in this one and see that you know uh, this is very much uh, a, a non-human interface this is jarvis kind of doing the work and we get to see jarvis doing the work um and and finding the reference photos as tony is talking about them bringing actually bringing up the uh the hot rod you know on one of the screens as he's looking through the um, reference photos for the color red and and we get to see all of the screens going crazy looking for red and how they're going to interpret red and then they just do the red uh, and we get a little bit of that uh, and then right as they're talking about how ostentatious it is we get that cut to the gold and black Bulgari watch is <laughs> such a nice stab on that particular line of uh, ostentatiousness mm-hmm and I'm well, assuming is... one of many product placements, too, that, that just exactly. winds up being a nice, uh, almost like undercut by the fact that it becomes a commentary on the character. Right, right. <laughs> and this is the, I mean, if you're looking at the deleted scenes, this is actually the second Bulgari watch that we've seen in the film. There is a yes. scene after he returns from Afghanistan and the press conference, uh, he comes home and on, the, on his table there is a, is a gift from Obadiah. That is another Bulgari watch that's similar to this one, but not quite this one. This Bulgari watch is the Diagono men's watch, which uh, has a retail price of $42,900. So get one for hmm. home and one for show. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, it's, it's, this is, it's an interesting story about this watch because actually they had talked to Bulgari about it and Bulgari apparently decided that they wanted to premiere this watch before it had been seen anywhere in the film. And so anyone who is a watch aficionado, of which I am not, uh, they they saw this watch and were instantly like amazed and in awe and they wanted one. It it didn't premiere until several months later. And I guess there's a an annual watch convention called, uh, and I don't know if I'm going to say it right, but Basel World or Basel World, B-A-S-E-L World. Uh, it's the World Watch and Jewelry Show. And uh, in 2008, after this film premiered, that's the first time um, that uh, the watch was available for sale in uh, in. Basel, Switzerland, yeah. I didn't know that, but it certainly makes 
it makes sense that it gets, I mean, even more so than a usual placement, it gets such an amazing lingering beauty shot that oh, they, yeah. uh, they make damn sure it's like, let's spend a moment admiring this fine timepiece. You know, you almost yeah. expect the like text to pop up and say available soon. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess Robert Downey Jr. had uh, had some involvement in picking the watch and the style mm. and everything. And I guess because he actually wears a Bulgari in real life, he of course was really he pushing does. for that. <laughs> of course he does. $42,000 watches, of course. But uh, yeah, I guess it's one of those watches. They only made a maximum of, I think, 300 of them. Wow. So it's, yeah, it's very limited. Obviously, mm. if they're that much, they're not making a lot of them. I just think of what other things I could accomplish with over forty thousand dollars, and I, you know, my phone has the time on it, so I, I, I don't need don't, that. Don't tell Bulgari. Yeah, yeah I, <laughs> our phones have the time on it, right? <laughs> I, I just, I, you know, and I'm always surprised when I get into watch conversations, just how, how passionately. Uh, people that I am surprised feel passionately uh, feel about watches, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it is a it, it's a deeply sort of personal thing to people, yeah. and watches are you know passed down over ages. Uh, but I'm when I see this lovingly, uh, luxuriously lingering shot on this on this particular watch, I I have to think what is the size of the crossover of this Venn diagram, you know, of people who know what they're looking at at that level and also are fanatics about Iron Man. I, I, I legitimately, I'm not making a joke. I legitimately don't know. And I'm surprised that it is big enough to, to merit this kind of a product placement. Well, given the kind of character that Tony is, it may be more of a crossover than we think, than, than maybe yeah. there is a substantial one. You, Absolutely. You want me to throw out something very like overly pretentious academic about it too. There's there if I wanted to try to figure out a reason, it's interesting because like having spent all those years with collectibles, it's like everybody has a passion about something. And watches. I once talked to a guy who was like not just a watch collector, but he also like repaired vintage watches and knew all about the intricate workings. And of course, there's a certain respect and and value and extraordinary attention to. Uh, vintage timepieces that are still working properly because they're entirely mechanical. There's nothing yeah. electronic. And it's like a triumph of design and precision and engineering. And in essence, then, the finest watch in the world, if it's functioning like that, is a great metaphor for Tony and everything else that he does. Yeah. So even this ridiculously, you know, over demonstrative product placement, you could still argue, well, there's a reason, you know, a really fine yeah. timepiece is, is Tony's work. So, yeah. Yeah, just just yeah. like the timepiece in his chest that's uh, keeping a regular tick, right? Clock's ticking on Tony, too. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. So there you yeah. go. Actually, he should have just built in the time into his chat. <laughs> it should be like a villain's facing a him and they can look at his yeah. chest and see what time it is. And it's like, I really got to get going. We've only got, yeah, we've only got four more minutes for this. Come on, let's get, let's get through this. Uh, another thing I never think about just, uh, you know, because I'm belaboring user interface stuff, uh, there is a continuity issue, it uh, looks like. The uh, at right at 20, 23... Or at right at nineteen twenty seconds into this minute, he's drinking, and it cuts to a close up of the or a, a full shot of uh, the screen with the interface on it, 
uh, and it's got uh, all of the the Iron Man suit stuff and the coloring. And, and it's the Dell monitor that's sitting behind Tony uh, with the two. You can kind of see the two silver drawers behind him. And as it cuts away from that, now we're facing Tony and you can see that monitor, the Dell monitor behind him no longer has that stuff on it. All that stuff was on I the, see. the Apple monitors in front of him. Yeah, I see uh, that. And so interesting. Um, that's an interesting little cutaway. Yeah, and you can see the yeah. same drawers. Yeah, yeah. Huh. They're making you. They're making it seem like he's looking at the uh, um, the Apple monitor when that's it's in front of him. Yeah, yeah. But it's uh, clearly the Dell. Here's another one, by the way. I've never really bothered with this stuff all that much, but I know there are people that pay much more attention, and uh, it's like the bane of any continuity person's uh, work is his mm-hmm. drink. I I wasn't looking, but do we see if they were keeping that consistent with him with his glass? Because I'm sure that had to be filled and refilled a few times. Yeah, they do okay with that, and I think I think we're given the benefit of the doubt because he drinks some in the last minute, but then he grabs his blender, which conveniently he keeps right next to him, yeah. and he refills it. He refills it here, so at least at least there's that. Yeah. Okay. So we can yeah. Because I was looks looking at like- that too. Yeah, yeah, I was too. I was kind of watching that, and and uh, it looks like the um, the the I'm always watching like the tape on the ice pack. I think it's okay. I think all of that is <laughs> not shifting too much. Is not shifting around too much. I think that looks good. Uh, and then luckily, all that nitpicky stuff, we're out of it because halfway through this minute, we're back in the Audi. Yeah, and we're racing uh, to the event. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting shot to the Audi. I mean, it's it's nice. It again, uh, it's a nice transition. It it's motivated and it, it has a lot of energy because here's Tony uh, clearly driving faster than everybody else on the road. He passes every other single car. And then it cuts to an odd shot that I guess I attribute to the fact that right now the film is so much about the mechanics of how things work. We cut to a, a crane shot over the Audi looking directly down onto it. And through the back window and it looks like it's it's engine in the back there yeah, yeah. that we're staring at as as it drives under us and then the camera tilts up to this weirdly designed city shot that it, it's it almost looks like this this matte painting because it's just like this wall of tall buildings in the distance it's yeah. kind of it, funny this shot feels like it's right it, like they cut it out of a of an audi commercial yes right <laughs> it just feels like right out. the city is totally empty in this one shot like there are no other cars in it <laughs> and i don't mean this necessarily jokingly either but it's like it, it it fits in with the whole general idea of this movie on the one hand being like the like the tech and car porn kind of stuff because that's mm-hmm. what he is. It's like, you know, yeah. the the suit and everything. This is what he does. This is what he is. And so therefore, in a sense, you could even argue that whenever we get these beauty shots of technology or of a vehicle or the kind of things that fit within that, it's kind of like we're seeing the world from Tony's perspective. So it's like this car yeah. is beautiful. The engine is amazing and and very much like a commercial, conveniently, since they're placing the car in the movie, too. You know, right. you get a shot like that. Well, and, and in some regard, that rear engine is that that propulsiveness that comes from that feeling of that rear engine. Like you, it feels like, you know, Tony's, you know, repulsors in his feet, you know, yeah. when he's in the suit. Like it just feels powerful. It even uh-huh. has the um, if you look at the center of it, it has like that ribbed um, 
yeah. a thing that a lot of the waist area, like the, the abdomen area of a lot of the Iron Man suits have that because, of course, they're doing that. They're making his suits look like reflections of car engines and yeah. things that are familiar. Yeah, that's what's so interesting about that engine is it looks like parts of the Mark II suit. Yeah. Uh, Tony is, of course, driving to the... Uh, to this fundraiser at the uh, Disney Concert Hall, which is uh, where we end up at, right on on Grand. Uh, we are there as he gets out, passes his keys off to a valet, and uh, and heads up. And you can hear the the lovely Walla, which is the uh, the post uh, recording of crowd noises, which is always fun to see people in Walla sessions when they're just saying lines <laughs> randomly. And just you hear the you hear a woman. It's almost like some squeals or something that they, yeah. that they give <laughs> squeals of joy. It's like they realize who it is. And she's like, it is. And then they're all kind of squealing and tittering like there's Tony, you know, it's, <laughs> it's very funny. And I but how funny is it that they ended up picking the uh, Walt Disney Concert Hall to film at for this location? I mean, I can see why it has this really futuristic look. It fits in the in the theming and everything, but it seems so weirdly perfect considering Disney would be later buying Marvel. I was about and, to say, who knew that this was going to yeah. be so like so much synergy? But yeah, I guess it does kind of make sense, though, anyway, that, yeah. you know, it seems like the right place, but uh, it's, it's almost like they knew. <laughs> yeah. One day. Of, yeah. Maybe this was this was a setup. Like, just to, let's, let's go ahead and plant a seed, everybody. Let's see what people really think of the Disney-Marvel connection. Mm-hmm. We'll do it here. This is, <laughs> this is it. This is our big entree. Or they could show it to the Disney people and say, see, you know, we could do this in every film we could have. <laughs> <laughs> then they failed on that part because they I have not seen the concert hall pop up again. We haven't had like a knockdown drag out Avengers fight right outside Cinderella's castle or anything like that. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> just guys like the, you know, the cast members in full suits just falling everywhere as there's a massive attack. Which one's the real Iron Man? Which one's the real <laughs> Iron Man? At least they did do a little bit of that in uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet. There was a little bit oh. of t- tying in all the, the the princesses, the Star Wars universe, the Marvel universe. There was a lot of stuff kind of connected in that one. So that was it's, fun to see. It's funny that it's Ralph Breaks the Internet that is the first film to really exercise that particular demon. I'm sort of surprised <laughs> that it took so long. They had to wait for Lego to do it first, apparently. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Uh, but we do we do meet Stain and he is already like the first line we get out of Stain is him, um, you know, doing his uh, he's he's fighting fires. Uh, right? Always PR. To, yeah. Yeah. Always doing his PR. I have to say, having not encountered Stain yet in the minutes that I've spent with you is that I I love Bridges performance in this movie. And um, I think he was such a wonderful character to lead off with from that perspective in terms of like how the Marvel dynamic will work in movies. And I still kind of miss him. It's like his performance was brilliant because he was just so natural and so warm with Tony. And you could totally get that they've had a lifetime relationship and it's just fantastic. And I could just listen to him say Tony over and over again for the rest of my life. I don't know what it is, but the way Bridges wraps his mouth throughout certain sounds, it just sounds like he's always just a little bit stoned, which he probably is. <laughs> but, but yeah, you have to say this is he's the least stoned in this movie uh, in a lot of his recent crimes. yeah it's like drink a lot of water and then we'll shoot this scene and and he just said tony and i just love that so he's he was a perfect choice 
I love how he says manufacturing. It's like manufacturing. Manufacturing, Manufa- yeah. yeah. <laughs> the man has lived his professional life in that industry. He can't pronounce manufacturing at all. <laughs> I think he said, doesn't he say nuclear at one point in this movie? I think that's he, entirely possible. I think he does, which is a major mark against him. But all right, I'll let it go because it's Jeff Bridges, <laughs> and because he's the villain, we'll allow allow the villain. Yeah, that's to. right. Yeah, he gets a lot of head villains room. mispronounce things. That's how you know. Right. <laughs> it's like that Mac uh, PC thing in in twenty four. I know. There you go. <laughs> Going to manufacture some nuclear devices. <laughs> Uh, we have uh, we have a, a extra here uh, with Jeff Bridges. It is Brett Paddleford. Apparently, he's the uncredited reporter who's standing there interviewing Stain. This is his only film credit. Uh, his main gig, interestingly, seems to be a musician's coordinator uh, to coordinate uh, marching bands for films hmm. and TV shows. And uh, he is apparently he seems to currently be the director of public public relations for the USC marching band. And I guess. Uh, he just kind of ties that into uh, how he is involved in uh, film and TV projects. Awesome. It's an odd little job, but it sounds like it could be a fun one. Yeah. How fantastically intimidating would it be to to say, hey, you're going to go stand uh, and Jeff Bridges is going to stand over you and he's going to talk at you and you're going to have to look serious. I just get the feeling that like, I guess everybody has a bad day, but like on a reasonable day, I just get the feeling that like Jeff Bridges were like, don't worry, dude, this is going to be fine. Just, yeah. <laughs> just, I'm just going to chat at you for a minute. It'll be okay. Just hang in there. Pay no attention to the suit. <laughs> if anyone if anyone can do that and make you feel comfortable, I'm sure it's Jeff Bridges. I would think so, yeah. I would, think, yeah. I would like to think so for sure. Yeah. Well, I don't have anything else for this minute. How about you guys? Uh, I'm set. I'm good. We got a big one, big one tomorrow. Yeah. Arnold, thanks again for joining us. Oh, no problem at all. I'm really enjoying it. You want to remind everybody where they can find you out there on the inter- internet? Sure. You can find me on Twitter all the time, which is very unhealthy, at Doctor of the Dead. <laughs> and uh, you can also check out my publishing company where we do titles on all sorts of pop culture things you love, whether that's superheroes or television or zombies, at atbpublishing.com. Fantastic. Well, everybody, that is it for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to the show for free at marvelmovieminute.com. Join us over in our Discord chat room and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Next Reel. And if you like what we do and you want to support us and get some cool stuff, become a patron over at patreon.com slash The Next Reel. Until next time, true believers. True believers.